Being without internet is possibly the worst experience I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> I thought the internet's evil. I, I thought the internet's only where bad and things well, happen. That's the thing. I was just sitting there craving like people calling me horrible names on Twitter all day. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Well, well, I don't need to know anything more about your fetishes, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> that's all a podcast i was saying to a friend the other day that um i like to think of myself during lockdown i could be absolutely fine at home by myself and it didn't really bother me quite a relaxed person and i found out that it, that is literally only because of the internet welcome to the pin factory the adamsmith industries podcast my name is Ethi Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as John O'Connell, the chief executive of the Taxpayers Alliance. In this budget special, we're going to be discussing the growing state and tax reform. Chancellor Rishi Sunak's budget puts Britain on track to have the highest tax burden in 70 years and the most spending in 50 years. Not really a good start there. Uh, should we start with the tax burden. John, what's it going to be and how has it reached such high levels? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, The the tax burden in 23-24, I believe, is going to be the highest. It's been in 73 years at that point, the highest since 1950. Um, And I mean, the, the headlines of the budget, there were some wins for taxpayers, without doubt. You know, there were some cuts to fuel duty, some businesses will be happy with um, some extended business rate um, um, relief by freezing the multiplier um, and other bits and pieces besides, you know, there was a cut to air passenger duty for domestic flights, et cetera, et cetera. So there were some wins for taxpayers that will help with the cost of living, but the overall tax burden is going up and going up quite steeply at that. And it seems to be the main reason um, it's, it's the, the smoke and mirrors part of the budget. It's the uh, fiscal drag. It's, you know, um, more and more people are going to be paying 40p rate with inflation and earnings going up and things like that. And when those um, thresholds are frozen, more and more people get dragged into higher rates of tax. Um, you know, so on the one hand, you get all of these uh, you know, wel- welcome um, cuts to consumer taxes. But, you know, everyday folk going to work, um, not thinking they're on a great deal of money. They might be doing quite well for themselves, but not on a great deal of money. All of a sudden, they're on the higher rate of tax at 40%. And, you know, these are the kinds of moves um, when you drill down into the numbers that really sort of beef up the tax take um, and partly explain why the tax burden is going to go up to its highest level since 1950. Yeah, I've always found it odd myself that those those tax thresholds, as you say, you know, causing a lot of fiscal drag aren't linked to inflation in some sense, or at least have some sort of mechanism baked in to account for that fact but i imagine that's you know a, a conscious decision from the exchequer as opposed to uh one that they haven't thought about very much yeah Dan, but- they, they they actively chose to freeze the the thresholds at the, the the last budget um earlier this year and now they're kind of reaping the reward of that at the time they weren't substantial inflationary um expectations but now that the inflation has come along they're effectively opting to bank all the benefits um, and and if if you dive into the OBR assessment, you, you're talking about some quite substantial cash here. Uh, 15, Sixteen billion. Um, this is just as a result of inflation. Sixteen billion more revenue over the next um, four years. Um, four billion more from business rates. Um, four billion more from student 
loans as well as quite substantial amounts from indirect taxes, particularly ones on, on electricity, on alcohol, um, that, that don't, aren't indexed for inflation. So just when prices go up, the government gets more money. The great irony I find of this is it's effectively being framed as, you know, this is a post-COVID reality. Uh, we, we've got a bigger state now, you know, that's that's what just the way it needs to be. We need more tax to fund COVID. But, but quite frankly, this has practically nothing to do with COVID anymore. The, the COVID, um, uh, effectively, the COVID spending is now... Um, in debt. We've got a massive national debt. This won't go far to paying down the national debt. All this budget is doing is actually raising more money and you're allowed to spend on ongoing programs that very little of it, you could maybe see some of the NHS catch up is due with COVID, but overall very little of it has anything whatsoever due to COVID. So they're using COVID as, as an excuse to basically shut us with higher taxes. And the greatest irony I find of all this is the fact that um, between now and the last budget we had six months ago, just because of inflation, because the economy is growing back a little bit quicker, um, the, the OBI estimates the government's going to get about $36 billion more revenue as a result of that. Now, $36 billion is about the same amount that the government chose to raise taxes in the last six months, the corporate taxes and national insurance hikes. So the government could have, Rishi could have stood up and said, actually, the situation is better than I thought. Great news. I can undo all these additional taxes I was going to put on you. That, that was option one. That's not what he did. He instead said, I'm going to bank all these additional taxes. I'm going to um, bank all the additional revenue that the OBI is giving me. And I'm just going to splurge on um, more state spending, on um, bigger departmental spending, on the NHS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we had an active policy decision here. There's nothing to do in a fundamental sense or very little to do in a fundamental sense with COVID because the economy is growing back. Um, faster than thought, but because the Chancellor and because perhaps the Prime Minister wanted to spend a lot more money. Yeah, uh, sorry, just to come in on that point, I think, um, you know, Paul Johnson said it, um, the head of the IFS, he said that it's a bit disingenuous to try and link any of this action to the pandemic. These are all now policy choices, as you said, Matt. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily surprised about that, though, because, you know, the, the pitch has been rolled for this since you know, the run up to the election of 2019, the, the, the current government said they were going to spend more money. They said they were going to level up. They said they were going to spend more money in the regions and more on CapEx and all of these kind of things. So to, to, to a certain extent, I'm not surprised. However, I suppose when you see it laid out in numbers, it becomes a lot more real and, and it sort of sharpens the focus a little bit. But, you know, politically speaking, I'm not necessarily surprised. It's kind of what they said they were going to do. Um, but, you know, again, Rishi quite often tries to um, tout his sort of low tax, small state credentials. Uh, I mean, where were they? I mean, again, we keep hearing, oh, there's going to be a pre-election, pre-2024 election giveaway with tax cuts and all of these kind of things. Well, um, I- I'm not sure how easy it is going to be to roll back spending on, on such a significant scale like that. So um, I- I'm not necessarily optimistic about that, unfortunately. Yeah, and speaking of that, John, I know you, along with Mark Littlewood at the IEA, interviewed Rishi at Conservative Party conference on this idea of whether he is, in fact, a a low-tax conservative. Do you see, as I I think might be the case, that there's kind of a political aspect to this where we're going to have these sort of massive eye-watering tax increases now and Mm. lots of spending in order to well, at least in the minds of the Treasury, create or in the minds of Rishi, create fiscal headroom for pre-election tax cuts. Do you see that as his kind of strategy? Or do you think actually this is more of a, a kind of long-term shift in thinking about the, the size and role of the state? It's a really interesting one. I, I mean, I'm possibly being naive, but I do believe that that's the kind of direction he would like to go in personally. Um, 
the problem is the the man next door um i think you know yeah it's difficult and uh, the, the the reshuffle right and, and boris johnson took away all of sort of rishi's loyal sort of uh chief secretary to treasury and, and other members of the treasury team are replacing with his own people does that signify that he's going to move to this uh, completely different direction i mean I don't know. I don't know. I, I quite like to think that Rishi's sort of honest in, in, in that assessment of how he personally sees tact and spend. It, it's just obviously not playing out in reality quite yet. And um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I do think that we probably shouldn't be too surprised, given that um, all the boosterism we see from Boris Johnson, that this happened, that this budget manifested itself at this point. Um Again, trying to link it to the pandemic, slightly disingenuous. Um, I'm, I'm, let's say, naively optimistic. I, I, I think he he does believe in in those kinds of things, um, but also there's a slight difference between a fiscal conservative in in terms of uh, you know everything must be paid for and every penny must be accounted for, and those who might believe that there are sort of longer term stimulus effects from lower taxes, where you might sort of get you know a slightly bigger deficit in the immediate term, but the long-term benefits of the dynamic tax um, returns uh, paying out over the longer term. So maybe there's that conflict for him. Maybe he's a sort of low taxer, but not necessarily doesn't, you know, doesn't see the sort of big picture long-term benefits of tax cuts that maybe all three of us on this podcast might, might believe in. I'm I'm a little bit less optimistic about this, just, just because I don't like the doublespeak. I don't like someone announcing a budget in which you're providing historic taxes and then giving me a bit of a, a sod to free marketeers on the side. I, I, I just don't think it's genuine, even if even if it is genuine. And I, I can't, if he's, if he's not going to do it today, when is he going to do it? When is he going to be the person that he claims that he wants to be? And I guess you could, the best argument you can make is, well, he's basically sending a signal to the department saying, don't ask for any more money. But he's actually just given them a lot of money. And he's saying, we can't increase taxes anymore, but we've just increased taxes a lot. So I, I just I just cannot square in my head um, someone who says one thing and does another. And I think we have to judge Rishi not by what he says about free markets, which is very nice, but actually what he does. And so far, the news isn't good. Maybe it'll be better in a few years' time. And maybe the, the political economy of this is that they, they're going to decrease taxes in the future. Um, and and maybe, maybe, maybe you're right, John, and I'm being a little bit too pessimistic, but I, I just can't trust Rishi when he, when he says this. No. I think this is an interesting point, um, though, about just, just building up about the fact, you know, what does it mean to be a fiscal conservative? And you could probably make a strong argument that, yes, he needs to balance the books, and um, therefore increasing taxes makes sense. I'm not sure it does because, A, he's increasing taxes to, to spend more, but, B, to some extent, um, his justification for increasing taxes, mainly to spend the NHS, to, to do the catch-up, you could probably justifiably borrow to do the catch-up as a one-time expense rather than creating a permanent new revenue stream into the NHS. So from an economic perspective, um, uh, although you can say the cost of borrowing is about to go up, it hasn't gone up yet, you could you could take out 50-year loans at a very low interest rate still um, in order to fund the NHS catch-up without having to increase taxes and slow down the recovery along the way. Yeah, um, so, sorry, I, I nearly cut you off in the middle there, but um, just to um, expand on that a bit, um, I think I, I, I think you're right, actually, in the sense that the sort of tax burden argument he can make and he can say we need sort of slightly higher taxes to try and help repair the finances, but it's the spending review side that was really troubling in many respects because um, he was, you know, reeling off huge spending commitment after huge spending commitment um, not only that, but sort of 
um, promising every single government department much bigger budgets. Um, and that speaks to me of just sort of spraying money around as opposed to prioritizing and sort of saying, mm-hmm. okay, you know, we're going to, we are going to, you know, I don't know, sort of improve road and rail in the north and here's some money to do it. But in order to do that, we're going to, you know, reduce budgets here or, or cut this guango or get rid of this sort of function of government. So, you know, it, that worries me. So, so so to speak to your point, Matt, about it. You know, yeah. The, um, the other point that worries me as well is the sense in which he likes to take credit for things. Um, and he, he gets up, he says, you know, the reason why the economy has done so well is because we stood in and we helped. And I, don't get me wrong. I have no doubt. And, and you know, we supported, um, you know, I typically we did support a lot of government spending during the pandemic, especially when they were shutting down businesses. But quite frankly, the reason why they're coming back is because um of the, the private sector because of, of private economic growth. It's, it's not just because of what the state does. And he seems to, on the one hand, declare I'm a free marketeer, but on the other hand, seems to have extreme amount of faith in the state. And you just take the whole levelling up agenda when he's, you know, it could have basically been a, a, a brown budget when it came to, you know, we're going to spend money on this project and that project and that project and that project. Just this whole idea that basically you can spend your way into regional equality, which we know is fundamentally nonsense. I mean, maybe some of those infrastructure projects have some justification. One that stood out to me was, oh, we're going to put some money into into Liverpool to build a, a Beatles um, uh, museum or memorial or something on the riverfront. There's already plenty of Beatles things in Liverpool. It's, it's, it's not clear what, whatsoever why Liverpool needs another Beatles thing, and if so, why the state needs to fund it, since it's an extremely popular tourist attraction in the first place. You, probably, you, know, you, can, you can fund privately a lot of these things. So that is an example of something where, where it's just clearly wasteful spending. It's something they want to announce. Sounds nice. Isn't going to you know, make Liverpool a great place. Liverpool has you know, arguably already done very well with um, uh, building itself up and, and as a su- successful city. Uh, it doesn't need that that extra bit of spending but you know when you're announcing start spending why not just throw a little bit of money at that as well yeah yeah um, the, the Beatles are from Liverpool who knew I never knew that before. Uh, <laughs> new information yeah the Beatles right. Museum is, is for me like a really good example of how the sheer amount of announcements for new spending in this budget and also to be fair though not quite as bad in previous budgets as well actually is starting to make it hard to scrutinize each individual item of announced spending because there's just so much that you know even someone who is like a free market think tank wonk interested in this sort of stuff and that's certainly you know i'm sad to say not the majority of the population sitting there watching along in the asi office and after about half an hour we're going to spend you know 100 million pounds on cabbage patches here and another 200 million pounds on communes in this town and so on and so forth you start to lose track of it and it becomes very difficult for, you know, serious organizations with even, you know, organizations with an awful lot of um, of staffing capacity and time on their hands to do this sort of thing, to actually scrutinize each individual announcement uh, to any great extent, because there's just so much. And, you know, if you drill down into the details of each new spending announcement, and say, well, hang on, is this actually the most appropriate use of taxpayers' money? Hang on, is this actually the best way of spending? Should yeah. we be spending this money at all? Should we not be cutting spending here or elsewhere? You start to realize that, yeah, it's this situation now where it's just a general kind of rhetoric of, oh, we're going to spend money. That's what is actually being uh, being put forward. It's what wants to what Rishi wants to come across in the papers, yeah. that he's just spending lots. It doesn't really matter as much where that is or whether that spending is actually useful or improves people's lives or anything along those lines. It's just the fact that he, he's prepared to spend a lot. But John, you mentioned um, 
obviously the, the kind of high tax take at the start of this and the the idea of fiscal conservatism a true a good understanding of that being about some of the dynamic effects of tax cuts as well as the uh, unfortunate dynamic effects of tax increases so how do we think that some of these these higher tax rates are going to actually affect the economy i mean the corporation tax increases for example for me that a huge concern in terms of affecting future business investment and growth yeah, and not least because Joe Biden has sort of seems to have rode back on some of his corporation tax increases. So, you know, th- there was cover at the time, you know, America are doing it too. So um, it's not no bad thing for us to do it. But um, I, I, I think I think actually we, we're going to try and look at some work and to try and demonstrate this. Um, we're going to try and model some tax changes to show or, or, or attempt to show um the, the sort of second round, third round, fourth round effects of tax changes and, and the, the benefits they can bring over the long term, because everyone knows about the Laffer curve. And, you know, you, sometimes if you lower the tax take, you bring in um, more tax revenue. But um, the Treasury and others, too many others in, in the Westminster debate think in quite static terms. Right. So if you increase um, a tax by one percentage point, you bring in why more revenue and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and actually, we, we all know that, you know, lowering the tax rate on, on, on a business could mean that they hire more staff who will pay more income tax and national insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So not only to get growth, you get more tax receipts. So we're going to try and show, demonstrate some of that. Um, maybe we should have done it before the budget, but hey, just on the spending side um, for one more point on that, uh, you, you're absolutely right. All of, the, all of these announcements that were being made, it makes it very difficult to scrutinize and Again, possibly quite a wonkish and boring point, but we've recommended in the past that um, there should be a parliamentary budget committee that looks at spending before it happens, because the NAO, the National Audit Office, um, do a fantastic job. And we do our bit, you know, digging around for wasteful spending. And, and we've got great guys who do excellent work on, you know, pouring through government documents, um, but we're you know, sort of limited by resource, I, I suppose. But assessing spending before it happens is probably more important in many, many ways. And um, if there was a committee in Parliament that had a responsibility to, you know, maybe there's a threshold over a certain level, spending over a certain level must go through a rigorous process before it's allowed to happen. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to have a a cost-benefit analysis every once in a while? Just back to that Liverpool example, because it it just really irks me so much. (laughs) There is already in Liverpool a Beatles, the Beatles story, the, the Caravan Club and the Liverpool Beatles Museum. There's already three Beatles attractions in Liverpool. And for some reason, they're putting £2 million into, um, in fact, so far, it's just a business case to decide whether it's necessary. Uh, the, the mayor has declared it's, in fact, not a museum, but an immersive experience, whatever whatever the heck that means. It's just, it's that, it's, I mean, it's not a lot of money. It's only £2 million, but I think it is quite indicative of, of the way the state is now operating. And the fact that there is no, what, you, what, you're, what you're effectively wanting for is a cost-benefit analysis. What, what is the actual benefit to people? from this i feel i feel like that point you know you, you you're right in that it is at the end of the day only and i say only in quotation marks two million pounds the worry that is and and what seems to be happening is that that's the justification for all of these kind of more minor spending items that when you take them together add up to be an absolutely huge increase in in completely pointless in my opinion i mean i'm not a beatles fan but that's that's not why it's pointless uh but completely <laughs> pointless spending and you know you think, okay, well, it's only two million. Oh, it's only you know three hundred million, five hundred million for extra X on Y, or 
or whatnot. And it does all add up. It, it's not just indicative of, you know, a, a problem about thinking what the role of government should be, but it also ends up, yeah, it hurts our pockets and it, it makes us poorer. Um, but looking the, at... The, the, the average household pays just under um, a million pounds in tax over their entire lifetime. Mm. So you're talking about the, the entire lifetime's work of two families to pay for this museum as a one-off cost. So there are, you know, real impacts on actual people when yeah. when we talk about two million dished here 3.5 there you know 10 million there like this this matters for people's sort of lifetime tax bills well, i hope um, that it needs to be keeping sharp focus i think but. i hope that those two households are beatles fans because if they're not they're going to be as irritated <laughs> they, might, yeah, as... Actually, they, might, they might be up for it if they're beatles <laughs> yeah. yeah there you go um on, on spending more generally i mean the the argument is that uh, there's you know there's a need to massively increase uh departmental spending and there's, there's not really any areas that can be cut to any great extent or well, that's just not um priority is this true at all uh, are there seriously no areas of government spending that can't be cut in order to actually save taxpayers a little bit of money instead of having to to just increase it uh, every single time we go to a budget well you, you think that when the state is spending more than one trillion pounds to you know, they could find perhaps a bit of money here and there to save. I, we, we did a big investigation with the Daily Mail back in, uh, I think it was last year. Um, and we looked at government waste and we identified what we thought to be wasteful spending, you know, um, and it was about six billion pounds worth. And that's scratching the surface, to be honest. Um, I it, it, It's really interesting that um, the incentive structure for people that work in the civil service, it's, it's about bigger budgets. It's about, you know, get the money out the door so that we can get the same money next year. I wonder whether there's something in reversing that so that um, staff are rewarded, maybe even financially rewarded somehow for identifying savings, because they're going to be the ones that know where the, the, the sort of money is being wasted. You know, um, do they sort of, you know, just sort of... Uh, keep going for the same contracts over and over again, because that's just how it's done. Um, how about shopping around? You know, procurement is about one pound in every three of government spending and procurement's a mess. So if you're sort of getting to grips with one pound in every three of government spending by fixing procurement, you know, and we can do so much more easily outside the EU, just as an aside, um, then you start to make really huge savings. And again, if we can shift the incentive structure so that staff in the civil service can tell us how to do it and, and show us where the savings are, then, you know, win, 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 I suppose. Yeah, I feel as though just going down to the pub for a drink with a civil servant and not even prompting, but just letting them come forward with various tales of ridiculous spending decisions and government waste, you know, that's happened to me a few times. And it's, I imagine that's the story. If you speak to pretty much any civil servant, they have a very good idea of, you know, how their particular department is wasting millions of tens of millions hundreds of millions of taxpayers cash on things that could very easily be fixed but isn't just because of you know, the bureaucracy or inertia or whatnot but Matthew um, if you were to take a, a kind of axe to the government's splurge of spending where would you start 
Look, I'd start by obviously abolishing the NHS. You can you can save about forty five percent of the government's money. I, I mean, in all seriousness, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. And I think that speaks to the challenge here. And this is this is effectively what um, Rishi said to Mark um, Littlewood and and, and used John when he was at, um, generously came to speak to the free marketeers. And I thought he was very charismatic and very interesting and whatever else. He said, "Well, where would you cut?" And from his perspective, it is it is challenging because every there are so many demands on the state. Every interest group's pushing it. You know the, the the people of our perspective and uh, as much as john you do a fantastic job representing taxpayers there's, there's only so many of us what disappoints me the most though in some respects is just the lo- the loss of any interest in reform mm-hmm. it, it doesn't get the sense that, that this government sees any solution to a problem other than more state spending so if the nhs isn't performing that well spend some more money on it education more money um care social care more money there's there's just a lack of willingness to do the, the more difficult tasks with respect to, well, if you're going to spend all this money, and let's just say for a moment, I don't think they need to spend all this money, but if, if they are going to spend all this money, they should at least get some bang for their buck. They should at least say, well, okay, we'll give the NHS more money, but you know, here's what we want from the NHS with respect to structure or control or consumer or, or targets or um, patient choice or something, just just something, some some sort to actually improving the quality of the service. Or like, we'll, we'll give more money to the education department, but you know, the, the education sector needs to provide more student um, choice more parental choice and, and more competitive pressures and increased standards or something along some 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 little thing and and you know as, as much as free marketers weren't necessarily the biggest fan of the the kind of Cameron Osborne era Osborne era for for a number of reasons it really in retrospect does seem like a golden time because they at least had some interest in going up against a sectional interest in, in different sectors and reforming the the way schools operated by choosing free schools reforming the way hospitals operated um through through, through a new structure through the landscape reforms uh, admittedly all this stuff is imperfect and it, and it, it always is imperfect but just the fact that there's just no ambition when it comes to to potentially making some enemies along the way but improving the quality and the delivery of public services and that's just been completely lost from the debate about the budget you could say the low-hanging fruit of reform has been done but i think there are plenty more things they could do if they're going to spend all this money to actually improve the quality of what we get from the state yeah i I think there's kind of a missed opportunity in political terms here as well if you say Childcare, for example, you know, if you announce I'm going to spend X more amount on childcare, that's the perfect time to give you the political cover to say liberalise uh, care to child ratios or something like that to actually improve the quality and the functioning of the system and also reduce costs in the long run as well. And the same can be applied to the NHS, as you man- mentioned, Matthew. If you've got the political cover, you know, because that's your policy program that you put in the manifesto to spend loads and loads of money everywhere, then you should at least use that time most effectively to actually improve the quality and, and look again at some of the regulations in different sectors to, to actually make a change that's going to last in the long run instead of your legacy just being, well, you know, we like every single government before us um, bar one or two have spent lots more money on this aren't we great yeah i i think um pay and pensions has to be mentioned as well for public mm. sector staff i think um you know gordon brown increased taxes sort of early 2000s to pay for you know big spending increases for the nhs and that was swallowed up by um pay increases um you know uh, public sector pensions and quite a big growth in, in middle management in the NHS. So the money didn't really hit the front line in the, in, in the way that they sort of said it would. And, and, and I worry that that's going to happen all over again, that um, these big tax increases to pay for NHS improvements, et cetera, et cetera, 
um, are simply going to get swallowed up by um, pay increases um, and, and these kind of things. I think the one mitigation against that, to be fair, was um, a slightly bigger spend on capital expenditure within the NHS budgets. But until um, you know things like decentralised pay bargaining are tackled, um, where you know pay decisions are made locally instead of in Whitehall by civil servants. Um, I think that every time more money is chucked at public service, you run the real risk of most of it disappearing in pay increases, which, you know, you could argue, someone could argue that that's a good thing. But when it's not twinned with reform and you're not getting bang for your buck, what's going to happen in five years time? The same services are going to come back to you and say, we need more money again. Um, It's not like everybody sort of said, thank you, Rishi, for all of these extra bits of cash you've thrown at us. I think he's got... um, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of pushback from public service unions saying, yeah, fine, but not enough. I mean, it's never going to be enough for these people, of exactly, course. That, exactly. That's the, cent- the central issue. You can, you can throw as much, this is the whole irony. We're, we're somehow expecting, um, and we've discussed this before, of course, is the national insurance rise in the immediate terms is basically all going to the NHS. Do we seriously think in a few years' time the NHS is going to go, yeah, that's fine, cut our budgets, we've had enough money now? That's just mm-hmm. never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, how much that money is actually ever going to win up in, in social care is, is completely questionable. And how much of it is just going to be baked into to higher um, costs on staff um, seems like the, the most likely outcome. Well, let, let's move to maybe a, a spending increase that the three of us might be more comfortable with, and that's the changes to the universal credit taper rate. John, just going to you first, because I think me and Matthew both probably uh, are fairly happy with this um, and also happy with the sheer extent of it. I think it, the cut to the taper rate was a lot higher than I think some people initially thought at the budget do you think this is one of the the kind of better ways to spend taxpayers money probably yeah um if you're sharpening incentives to work then that has to be a good thing i think Mm. that's the whole point of universal credit in the first place was to bring together all of these disparate benefits that the whole system was a mess i mean it's probably still a mess now arguably but you know it, it it got rid of lots of different benefits and brought them all into one payment and if you are going to be sort of encouraging people back to work then letting them keep more of their money is perhaps a good way to do that. And, you know, there's a good employment story to be told, you know, amid, amid all the gloom and doom that we've all been going through just now, there's, there's a good employment story to be told over the last sort of 10, maybe more years, um, lots of people in jobs, but um, arguably reforms to welfare have helped that story along and, you know, bringing it down by eight percentage points, technically it's more, more, it's a bigger taxpayer burden, but if we're going to be sharpening incentives to work, then, as you say, probably a better use of money than the Beatles Museum in a, in a, <laughs> in a city that's already got fourteen of them. <laughs> you know, it, it is it is of course a lot more money. It is quite expensive. I yeah. was I was much happy with this as a way to improve universal credit over just increasing or, or bringing back the the kind of twenty pound uplift yeah. that was meant to be temporary. Um, it, this is won't apply to as many people but it will increase the incentives to work it will mean um fewer points where you're, you're basically barely better off by getting a job you could you could obviously either frame this as increasing a handout or a tax cut um and in some ways it's it's simultaneously both rishi described as a tax cut i'm willing to accept it as a tax cut because um 
in some ways it, it is the least worst thing way you can you can spend government money, which is directly supporting people into work and ensuring the state when they when they do start working, the state is taking less of their money. And I'm personally, uh, it hasn't been perfectly implemented, but the principles of universal credit are very good, and the system um, has seems to have actually been functioning relatively well, and is is one of the the big successes. It was quite controversial, but I think it's actually a huge success. And improving this tape rate situation, making it a little bit more generous, does make it a, a fundamentally better system and more more capable of functioning. Yeah, I've I've got a kind of a mixed view on the uh, the twenty pound uplift versus this, as it seems to have been framed. I, I do think, as you mentioned, Matthew, a, a lot of uh, commentators on the budget pointed out that well, you know, this is certainly going to help uh, millions of, of working families, and pointed out the obvious and and very important argument about work incentives. But it was also, I think, understandably highlighted that it's not necessarily as well targeted at families who say or, or individuals who can't work for whatever reason um, as the kind of bringing back the 20 pound uplift would be although my, my again my, my kind of initial reaction to that is well that's true in the short run um, but in the long run it is about trying to make sure that those millions on universal credit as many of them as possible are able to get into work and in the long run that is going to make them much better off it's going to make the the poorest in the UK much better off than simply uh, a kind of bung in cash so there's this kind of trade-off here where okay you're gonna if you're gonna go for the taper rate as your main um, your main spending item when it comes to increasing universal credit you've you've got that cost of you're, you're not targeting necessarily um, those who need it most at least initially but at the same time, what you're doing is you're encouraging them to a situation where a few years down the line, they'll be in better paid work um, or in work in the first place, and they, they'll be able to improve their skills, improve their human capital um, and kind of experiences. You often talk about, Matthew, the dignity of work as well, which I think is often underappreciated. Uh, but just finally for this kind of section, I, I guess I'm interested in both of your thoughts on how much of this, and you mentioned this earlier, John, how much of this spending and, and taxing agenda is being driven by number 10? Um, or is it a kind of wider shift in the way that the Conservative Party thinks about the role of government? The kind of naive, you know, 16-year-old me who first get into this, oh, the Conservatives, they're, they're all the ones that, you know, they, they want low spending and, and low taxes. But really looking back in history that hasn't been the case for the majority of the time of the conservative party so at least in my opinion i'm interested in yours on this it, it seems like this is not actually that dissimilar to what the conservatives have been like for the vast majority of their history as a political no, party I, I i agree with that um because of the era of you know margaret thatcher and low taxes and small state and milton friedman and all the rest of it i i, I guess that people growing up in that time or, or, or sort of coming to sort of adulthood at that time might assume that that's what the Conservative Party is all about. But you're right, there's loads of different strands to the Conservative Party and, and we, we shouldn't assume that um, the way that maybe the three of us on this podcast think or believe is, is the dominant um, strand within the Conservative movement. I think that we need to, which, which which actually makes our jobs really important, right? We need to keep making the case. We can't just assume that that's what the, the, the Conservative Party might do or, or, or anything like that. We have to keep making the case and keep doing the research and keep making the arguments because the evidence shows that what we argue for works best, right? Um, but, you know, in terms of the current number 10, 
yeah, that again, not really surprising. That is what they campaigned on in the run up mm. to the 2019 election. Um, so there's no real reason we should be surprised about it. I, 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 I think that the pandemic kicking in and, and, you know, total managed expenditure going up to 50% um, or 52% even in 2021, 2021 um, maybe one assumed, okay, we all realise that that's excessive because of a particular reason and there might be some rollback of some description, but there wasn't, there wasn't at all. And as you say, it's completely divorced from... Um, pandemic costings. Now, these are all straight up policy choices. And this is about their leveling up agenda, you know, I, whether it's the right way to do it or not, I, I, I contest that. But from their view, this is about leveling up. This is about, um, I, I suppose, um, removing themselves from the label of austerity that might have, you know, quote unquote, tarnished Osborne and Cameron's time in office. Um, but then taking a, another step back, you think that's what makes the Conservative Party quite a good election winning machine because they're able to do that and go into sort of perhaps a fifth term offering a completely fresh perspective on things and, you know, um, really sort of stealing Labour's clothes. So, you you know, good politics, bad economics, twas ever thus, I guess. Yeah, I'm not as convinced it is as good politics as I think it is. I, I'm not... Um, clearly, there is something you know very popular about the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. But if the, if the, just take that as an example, if the system is failing to deliver for people, um, they're not going to get much credit because they've spent more money on it. Um, if you can't call up your GP and get an appointment in person ever, and, and can't get an appointment over the phone for two weeks, if people are losing more of their income to the state, particularly these um, new Tory voters who I think are slightly mischaracterised because if you look yeah, at them closely enough, they actually tend to be. Um, a little bit more entrepreneurial, um, a little bit uh, higher income, definitely very likely to be homeowners. These are actually people who do pay taxes, even if they are in, you know, quote unquote, red wall seats and left behind. They didn't vote for the Tories for higher taxes. So I don't think the electoral calculus necessarily is going to add up. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if at some point there is a bit of a, a backlash against this this big spending Toryism. No, well, no, I think I, I, I agree with that. Sorry, sorry, Dan, just, just very quickly. I, I agree with that to an extent. We've done some research work on red wall seats ourselves and they're not sort of you know oh just chuck more money at us we love more money being spent they they want low taxes they are quite entrepreneurial that you know particularly in places like the tees valley and you know mm. they we've focus grouped up there and people going on about you know how the labor party still talk about the coal mines and to them the coal mines was 40 years ago what, what why are you still talking about this and they're very entrepreneurial um, so I, I do agree with that to an extent. By good politics, I mean potentially winning five elections in a row. And that's, you know, just straight fact. I mean, you know, they've sort of changed direction within that time and pivoted to all sorts of different directions. And, you know, let's assume they win the next one, that which is a big assumption, I guess. But let's assume they do. Five elections in a row is pretty unprecedented. So to that extent, on that raw measurement, I'd say good politics. But yeah, just to, to finish off, John, I think what you mentioned there about the, the importance of free marketers holding the government to account more so than ever when the vast or the majority, at least, of MPs and party don't seem to be that. I think you're completely right. And we often get, um, I, I guess, people don't necessarily understand our intentions here sometimes. So I was speaking to a, a friend in the Conservatives the other day about um, the ASI getting... Uh, our wonderful Guardian front page after the Prime Minister's speech at party conference. And they were making the point to me, well, you know, are you just doing this to to get, you know, social media hits and stuff like that? Why are you constantly 
on our backs. And it's like, no, we're, we're not doing it together. We're doing it to hold you to account. You know, we really need to, to do this because if we don't, then you're going to end up being, you know, worse than the other parties on all of these really important issues that affect people across the entire country. And I think they uh, kind of didn't react particularly um particularly well to that point well, but uh, yeah I, I look, we, we did the same right we uh, didn't quite get on the front page of the guardian mind but um you know um <laughs> not that it's a competition think tanks competing for guardian on the front page it's a, it's a whole new world I, I think if we were going to be on the front page of the guardian it might be for a different reason but um <laughs> we um we did, we did some work a little while ago on the size of the tax burden it seems very simple but you know we started saying you know it's the biggest since you know, Clement Attlee, et cetera, et cetera, that, that now started to seep into public consciousness. And again, we, we've got lots of media hits in, in some quite, you know, strange places, places where we don't normally get media hits, I suppose. But the, the, the objective is not media hits there. Uh, the media hits are a tool to hold the government to account and say, you know, we're watching. The tax burden is increasing. And for groups that believe that taxes ought to be kept sort of relatively low and simple for you know, believe in economic growth, believe in prudent spending, um, you know, we're, we're watching. And I think that it's totally the right thing to do. And, you know, if, if there's any backlash about, oh, not, you're not helping so-and-so, we're not there to help anyone except for um, our supporters and, and people who believe in what the same thing that we believe. We need to be that nagging voice in the back of the head saying, yeah. be better. Well, I think it's time to move on to our next section. After 40 minutes sort of talking about the various problems with the budget, we're probably going to spend another 10 minutes, and that's pretty indicative, talking about some of the potential good things. Well, in, in addition to a lot of announcements on tax and spend, we, we saw some more interesting reforms when it came to business rates, alcohol duties, and air passenger um, duties as well. Um, let's start with the, the perhaps the most exciting part of the budget, which was the, the changing around of the alcohol duty system. Uh, John, I know you've done a lot of work over the years on this particular topic and, and the extent to which the, the state really does um, completely wreck citizens um, on, on these kind of duties. Are you happy with the, the changes that were announced? Uh, broadly, yes. I, there's, some, there's some quibbles, but you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. They're, they're, they're good reforms. They're going to save taxpayers, I think, according to the Red Book, about $555 million over the course of the, the forecast period. Um, as the Chancellor said, it's taking 15 different rates down to six. Um, you know, th- th- there's a lot of simplification and rationalisation here. Um, that's a good thing. I, I suppose on, on, on the slightly negative side, people who drink red wine might be a little upset. Um, and if you're this into is port- an attack of I me mean, personally, really. Like, <laughs> at least my champagne will be a bit cheaper. I did love the fact they sold this as cheaper Prosecco, when in fact it will also apply to uh, a bit more posh drinkers of champagne. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the Shadow Chancellor said something about bankers on domestic flights drinking champagne. And I don't think that happens all that often, does it? But anyway, um, but the, a, a much more rationalised system is a very, very good thing. Um, they called it a Brexit dividend and to loud cheers in the chamber and all the rest of it. And I, I guess it is. It allows us to um, do things a lot more simply. Um I think small brewers will probably benefit as well. Um, and a focus on the pub. And I know that, you know, people's drinking habits are changing, et cetera, et cetera. But for an institution that's taken an absolute hammering over the last 18 months of the pandemic, um, 
I even think some of the measures that were dreamt up during the pandemic, you know, you could only sort of go to pubs if they were serving food. I always sensed an undertone of nannying to that. You know, they just didn't like mm-hmm. people drinking um, full stop. So, you know, Especially you, you, in Scotland, yeah. yeah, you could only go to sort of sophisticated places where they sell food and, and all this kind of thing. So um, I never liked the sort of nannying measure to that. So I think the pub got an absolute kicking during the pandemic. So it was good to see politicians focus on giving it some support with much simpler taxes. There's business rates relief there for pubs too. But overall, and, and, and you know, the, the reforms will, will be saving taxpayers 555 million over the forecast period. The one year freeze until those reforms come in, um, which is another bit, good bit of news, will save 625 million for taxpayers. So, that, you know, big, big wins there for people who um, want to go out and enjoy themselves and for, for an industry and a sector that's um, been under the cost recently. Mm. So I know we're trying to be nice here, but I do always like to step back to first principles and say, why are there these special duties in the first place? Why is uh, why do you need to pay alcohol taxes or um, cigarette taxes, uh, especially in addition to the, all the other taxes we, we pay? Uh, is the government still a bit softer, Daniel, by not entirely abolishing alcohol duties? Uh, I'm, I'm going to come out as being a slightly annoying wet. I'll try and justify it. Um, but I, I think certainly when it comes to alcohol duties, I think there probably is a justification for, for so-called sin taxes on this. The problem is that people... Uh, Ah, soft, softer. Uh, people don't actually think, or at least the government, when they're thinking about this, they, they never consider it in terms of the way that you should, which is, well, you're trying to uh, compensate for the externalities caused by alcohol consumption, right? And there are plenty, especially when it comes to alcohol, plenty of externalities um, from consumption. Some of them, it must be said, uh, only as a result of our current approach to healthcare. And I think that if we had a, a system other than the NHS where uh, people who are able to bore more of the cost of their own health-related decisions, then we could certainly make a strong case for reducing alcohol duties quite a bit. But I think even after that, you've still got some of the, the costs when it comes to you know crime, drunk and disorderly behaviour, etc. And I think that sort of thing probably justifies um, some extent of sin taxes, not quite as high as we have now. The case, I think, is probably less strong when it comes to cigarettes, where you know there's kind of Research has suggested there might be a fiscal benefit to smoking, even if uh, a particular private health cost. Um, the, the kind of classic argument around that is to do with people um, taking out less in their pensions because obviously cigarettes aren't very good for you um, and they tend to pass away earlier. But that being said, I, I think that the, the kind of reforms that we saw in the budget are actually are a move towards this sort of more, I think, rational, I think, sensible view of alcohol taxation about trying to base it more on the amount of alcohol that's actually in your drink and the more alcohol in your drink the more it's taxed i think that you look at some of the the graphs that the ifs produced about marginal about tax rates on alcohol pre-budget um and pre this announcement it's just completely absurd you know it's all over the place and it's an artifact of the the kind of obsession i think with conservative mps and pubs and the alcohol industry in general this kind of narrative of the great british pub which i think in some ways is great because it's obviously it's a very important part of many people's lives the problem is where that ends up having all of these different special bungs to particular producers of particular spirits or wines or um, beers and whatnot that ends up distorting the system and moving away from this kind of you know taxing the externalities view of alcohol so yeah it it was a a really good move and you know it it resulted in cheaper pints i'm not much for wine drinker myself 
not much for prosecco drinker either but 3p <laughs> off my pint i'm i'll be very happy with especially as someone who lives in london and needs all the help i can get on purchasing cheap pints it's not uni anymore sadly <laughs> yeah i mean i i think I worry a little about about the argument about negative externalities and alcohol and tobacco taxes, largely because the level of taxes is is if you were to yeah. do a study on the negative externalities is just way beyond it. I mean, there's there's certainly um, non externality costs of alcohol, but obviously, if I'm as a consumer choosing to purchase alcohol and then I'm less productive the next day as a result, that's a cost to me, not a broad across the society. Um, I also get worried about using the NHS as a justification to, to tax, or because then the, the, it's the same logic which says, well, we should start banning these things. The NHS doesn't, we don't exist to serve the NHS. And therefore, although you might have some justification for some level of tax, I suspect it's far, far beyond that. But, but why don't we move on to the next part, which, uh, John, you mentioned there a second ago. About business rates reform. Were you excited by what the government announced? They've been doing a big review on business rates and they came back with a, a few different elements with respect to a temporary pause for um, the high street or at least a 50% reduction temporarily, um, as well as some, some changes around um, if you improve your property, won't be taxed for a year. Uh, what did you make of that? I'm slightly more worried about this one, largely because... Um... A big reform was promised. I know a, a, a consultation and a review was conducted. Um, it was supposed to report around now. I think it was supposed to report at the time of the budget. But I, th- I think that issue was slightly ducked. And I, I think he even said it in his speech, if I'm not mistaken, um, about the, the the issue for the Treasury is that it raises a, an awful lot of money. Um, and they can't yet see a system that is revenue neutral that raises the same amount of money that is fairer on shops etc etc um but you you know you were just talking about distortions in 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 alcohol duties i worry about distortions on business rates as well and Mm. this this sort of obsession with the high street and um i think that there's a certain element of that that is misguided and you know this this sort of old-fashioned notion of what high street is and what it should be consumers decide what high street is and what high street should be by their choices not politicians with their sort of special tax breaks so you know if the the traditional high street as we know it in our heads from the 1980s 1990s is going out of style and we're moving towards much more sort of you know food-based music-based drink-based kind of activities on our high street and allowing easier conversions into flats and, you know, having public squares for all sorts of different performances. That seems to me the way that consumer patterns are shifting and we shouldn't stop that. We shouldn't stop that by, you know, mm. um, sort of venerating this idea of, you know, 14 different shops where you do your, your sort of shopping on the weekend. Shopping is not really a leisure activity in the same more, in the same way as it is anymore. So I worry about yeah. that. Sorry, I'm, I'm off on a tangent, but I'm worried about the... No, I think, I think that's exactly what we should be worried about. And it was notable to say they're consulting on uh, a special kind of online sales tax because to even the playing field with the high street. Well, the whole point is the high street does take up prime real estate and that is taxed. Um, I'd love to see it as a land value tax rather than a business rate system so that if you do invest in your property, you're not punished. Not um, They said, oh, well, you won't be taxed more for the first year. Well, you should never be taxed more for improving mm-hmm. your property and, and putting something onto it. Um, and we should be thinking more about that. I think you're right about conversion of the high street, about more housing on the high street, which actually the government's doing great things on mm-hmm. um, with permitted development rather than the high street as um, a place where you shop because people aren't interested in shopping there. And then we should not be pushing up the cost of living with a new online sales tax. Ironically, 
we've just seen through um, the pandemic, just the value of, of online um, purchases. It's still not a majority of the purchases we normally make, but it's certainly convenient for people, particularly people who can't get out and about for whatever reason, or just like the convenience or can't access things locally. You know, I don't drive. So if I want to make a big purchase, I can only do it online. I can't carry, I can only carry things so big back to my home. So it's, it's just a simple level. It's also actually ironically better for the environment. People think, oh, getting all these deliveries is bad. It's actually not because most people will drive to pick things up and a delivery van going to lots of different places um, is actually more efficient than cars going to a um, shopping centre and back. So it, it's it's way, I think you're right. It, it, the, the, the direction of travel could be quite good if they were to properly reform it into a land value tax system, but I don't think that's where they're going. I think they're looking for a, a special sop to the quote-unquote high street. Yeah, I agree on the, the kind of need for reforming to base things more on land and i think to, to be fair although there's there's been hundreds of uh, there's been so many different reviews into business rates that haven't really ended up doing what's needed for serious reform this kind of idea of where well, you're not going to be taxed for improving your property even if it's temporary is at least a kind of beginning of a realization that actually business rates as they're currently designed act as a disincentive towards any sort of investment um and you know notwithstanding john's I completely understandable and I, I agree with them concerns about distortions towards the high street or this kind of fetishization of the high street as opposed to online shops we do want um, businesses to invest uh, and improve on on their their property in a way and we don't want to disincentivize that through the tax system so that that's a positive and I, I think what's often missed as well uh, the kind of you know come back to this is uh, business relief rates relief is is absolutely necessary in general for these sort of businesses that might be true in the short term but within a few years it's worth remembering most business rates cuts end up going to landlords right they end up getting they're being borne by the landlords mm. rather than the businesses themselves so anytime you see in a budget and you see it fairly often in recent years kind of business rates cut of any sort unless it is specifically targeted at that sort of you know relief for improving property for example it's usually just going to end up um costing the landlords uh more money or rather no rather same, they're going same. they're going to boost their rents basically in two to three years um and the benefit of that is going to be brunted within two to three years so it's, it's not going to be something that can really encourage more dynamic activity in the long run yeah, it's not, it's not a solver. The other, the other uh, also announced, I'm wondering what we think of the changes to domestic and international air passenger duty. It was the intention, I think it was, John, that it'll be cheaper to fly domestically in the UK, but more expensive to fly long haul. Yeah, um, I think it's, I think the tax cut is a good move and the tax increase not, surprise, surprise. Um, I think that, <laughs> I mean, politically, they had to do the tax increase, I guess, with the backdrop of COP and blah, blah, blah. I, I think they felt they had to do that. Um and, you know, if you're flying further, you've probably got more money and, you know, the more well-off pay. But, you know, cutting domestic ABD, no doubt a good thing. I think um, rail travel is expensive. There are some people for whom rail travel isn't even an option because they live um, in quite remote places. So that's a good thing. Um, so I don't really see much issue with that. It grabbed a lot of headlines purely on sort of political terms because of COP and how are you cutting air taxes when we've got a big conference and blah, blah, blah. But if the government is serious about sort of making different areas of the country sort of places where you want to stay and live and work, then making it cheaper to be there or, or to move around these places in the first place is no doubt a good thing. 
Yeah, I suspect this is my biosologic step, but I, I almost reached the conclusion that as someone who obviously does fly long haul, uh, if I want to you know, go mm-hmm. back to my home country, that I, literally if you do fly long haul, um, you might be for business, but often it's because you know people have family all over the world yeah. or they might even um, want to go visit somewhere else. Long haul, there is never an alternative. You might say trains are too expensive um, and for some places it is hard to take the trains domestically, but it doesn't actually... Um, see that sensical it seems kind of nonsensical to me an extent considering if there is usually a, an, an alternative for short haul even if an inconvenient one there isn't an alternative for, for long haul um, so it seems you know just a bit unfair although I can see the politics of it um, particularly domestically uh, kind of makes a lot of sense for the government to, to, to rejig things around it's just not in my particular interest so maybe that's my bias <laughs> Yeah, it's a kind of another weird one for me where I see some of the big issues with air passenger duty as a tax fairly poorly designed, but also, you know, in an ideal world would be in favor of a carbon tax in general, and that would presumably apply towards um, any sort of flight. So not sure that the cutting is necessarily the best response here. But if you look at air passenger duty as a tax, you know, it currently isn't very good at achieving sort of environmental objectives that it's supposed to i mean first off it's levied on the passengers as opposed to the actual amount of carbon used in a flight um so it's not really directly incentivizing airlines to say innovate in uh, their use of jet fuel or something like that plow more r&d into cutting fuel consumption for uh, airline flights but the other thing is that it's this kind of based on this weird practice of these destination bans and then kind of basing those on the distance between uh, where you're going to a particular capital city in a country. So it is one of these really poorly designed attempts at a sort of environmental externalities tax. Um, and it's not doing a very good job at the moment. Just on a like on a personal aesthetic level, though, the idea of cutting them for domestic flights specifically, just there's something about that just really irritates me because you just know that someone sat there um, in the department for leveling up and just thought, you know, what if we all took more flights to Edinburgh instead? That would connect the country <laughs> and communities and all of that guff that, that just really gets Nothing Dan hates more than communities. Yeah, exactly. Very anti-community. This is an anti-community podcast. <laughs> but John, I think you had to... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, like, the, the, the reason it's poorly designed is because they never really established what air passenger duty was for. There was a 2008 mm. report from the Department of transport in which it explicitly says it is not an environmental tax so (laughs) the the fact that it's now sort of you know morphed into this environmental tax means yeah of course it's badly designed because you know nobody wants to admit it was just slapped onto race and money by ken clark in the early 90s it was um you know this idea that it's to raise money to offset emissions and blah 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 you know that was sort of dismissed in a 2008 report from the government from the government at the time so there's there's little wonder it's badly designed when they don't even know what it's for in the first place so just kind of zooming out for a second i'm kind of interested you know there's always the classic talk of every organization says this budget was a missed opportunity for my reasons but i kind of want to end on a little bit more of an, an optimistic note i'm um, thinking about first of all what what i guess you know your number one ask might have been for the budget what you what kind of like tax reform you would have you'd have liked to see i'm thinking more of reforming taxes rather than just the kind of general story about lower taxes but also like how you know if you were speaking to a labor person and you said you know you want an alternative agenda what alternative agenda could we have to this kind of big taxing big spending government is there a tax reform on your mind that could could make make things a bit whole wow um well i mean 
if we're going ultra purist and ultra ambitious, then um, something like the single income tax, which is what we proposed in 2012 to reform the entire tax system, but in, in slightly more sort of... Um, how, how would the single income tax work? Um, it would abolish pretty much you know, a, a large percentage of taxes. And what you'd have is you'd have a single rate that would apply to um, personal income and uh, business income. You'd get rid of a whole host of taxes and um, uh, streams of income will be taxed once and once only and only when they're distributed. So if a company um, held profits and invested them, they wouldn't be taxed until they left the company in some way through dividends, et cetera, et cetera. But it'd all be done at one single rate that everybody could understand that if you earn twice as much, you pay twice as much. That would be the big bang uh, on, on a sort of more realistic, what could have possibly been announced, um, a merger of a, a start to merge national insurance and income tax over the course of the next four or five years would have been a good one for me. I think it's um, slightly misleading to have this sort of separate pot called national insurance that will, will look after us when we're old and infirm and all the rest of it. I think that it's another income tax. We know it. The government know it. Just call it what it is. Um, so a, a, a sort of signal that they were going to start merging the two over a period of time um, would have been a good thing. And we'd have had a bit more honesty on our pay slips at the end of the month. For me, it would be fighting a rearguard action against the corporation tax increase. I think if we're talking realistic here, um, I would love to have seen Rishi stand up at the dispatch box and said, well, actually, you know, if you look at some of the OBR's uh, new forecasts, um, if you look at uh, government spending and how it's actually not been as high as we thought, if you look at the kind of prospects for recovery um, i've decided that we don't actually need to do this anymore um, and that actually we should encourage british businesses to invest and we should encourage um, more companies to set up their home here and bring with that the employment the jobs the innovation that that comes with and i can 100 percent see him doing that in an alternate reality um, and it's just a shame that that's not the current reality <laughs> Yeah, I think mine would be uh, ambitious, but uh, not necessarily impossible, which would be a kind of a proper um, redoing of the the entire system of um, housing and, and business rates tax and get, getting rid of um, stamp duty, getting rid of business rates, getting rid of council rates and just replacing it with a, a land value tax that doesn't punish people when they improve a piece of property um, and is a more is a much fairer system as well. You know, there's, there's a lot of groups to, to the far to the left of us um, who would suggest that we should tax people um, not in arbitrary bands, but as a proportion of the total value of their properties. And also perhaps we shouldn't be using a, a council valuation system from the early 90s. It might be more sensible to, to up, update the system and, and have a fairer um, system of, of, land, of land tax, which would be uh, hugely economically beneficial because uh, if you got rid of stamp duty along the way, but, but also a much fairer system. But on that very exciting note of uh, the, the the dreams of uh, the friendly um, team here from from the ASI, this is to me, Matthew Lesh, head of research at the ASI, my colleague and, and co-host Daniel Pryor, as well as our guest this week, John O'Connell, standing up for taxpayers every single day of the week uh, at the at the taxpayers. Alliance. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please do rate, review, subscribe, give us a friendly rating and tune in next week for more banter analysis. 